0: You're listening to Conversation with the Experts, a Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast. Hi, my name is Tania Ramos and I'm one of the clinical nurse educators in the Royal Children's Hospital Education Outreach Program. Joining me today are Beck Marshall and Claire DeSimone, who are clinical nurse consultants for the ENT department. Beck and Claire joined me today to discuss the current management of oxygen desaturations following adenoid tonsillectomies. Welcome, back, and Claire. It's wonderful to finally have a chance to actually do this with you both. Uh, We often get lots of inquiries through our outreach program as to how we manage desaturation following tonsillectomies. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for having us, Tanya. Thanks, Tan. Wonderful. Let's start by asking you, why do children actually get referred to have their tonsils and their adenoids
1: removed? two main reasons that children get referred to see an ENT surgeon, um, one being tonsillitis. This one can be tricky because even though every single time a child has tonsillitis, it can interfere with their daily living and their school life and things like that. It can be quite painful and, yeah. and obviously lead to school absences. Yeah, yeah, which can be really troublesome, especially when a children children have um, learning difficulties and you know falling behind. But Unfortunately, we've had to make a bit of a criteria as to how often they have tonsillitis to fit the criteria to have their tonsils removed, because you could imagine if, you know, one or two cases a a year um, and everyone wants to have their tonsils removed, the wait list, it's already really blown out post-COVID, and that's one of the side effects of COVID that people don't know. These wait lists are huge. Yeah, This criteria of seven infections in one year seems like a lot, but... We need to, you know, draw the line and put those barriers in. And seven does seem actually like a lot of, um, I mean, you know, I've had tonsillitis a couple of times
0: in my life and I think one is enough, but seven does sound like a lot in a year. And do many children fit that criteria um, at RCH?
1: Yeah, they do. They also have five infections a year for two consecutive years, three infections a year for three consecutive years or two weeks missed from school in a year. We also need to think about the other patients that have other comorbidities that would affect their their conditions. So and what sort of conditions would they would they
0: be? What other comorbidities um, kind yeah. of would trigger?
1: Yep. So if someone's getting really sick with their tonsillitis and it's playing out with their epilepsy and they're having frequent seizures, then right. that needs to make a priority. They're not going to let those children sit and wait for seven infections a year yeah. before they take their tonsil- um, tonsils out. Or diabetes and they go to into DKA. These are things that they need to k- take in consideration. So every patient is very unique and at an individual case.
0: Yeah. And so those children will be obviously quite urgent how many children do we currently have waiting for their tonsils and adenoids um, to be removed here at RCH?
1: So, approximately 500 children are waiting for tonsillectomy plus or minus other surgery. So they right. might have grommets or adenoids or other nasal surgery done. So that's a, about almost 50% of the ENT waitlist are just tonsillectomies plus or minus other procedures. So wow. it's huge. Yeah, that's a massive and number. And like isn't I said it? before, that's just grown over COVID because there was that pause in surgery. It's a really significant side effect of COVID. I feel like that people think, oh, it's past. but we had a lot of time where we could not operate on these children. So, And that's had a significant huge. impact
0: on the waiting list, but huge. also I would imagine in the quality of life of these children and Correct. their families.
1: Yeah, it's really hard. Um, Claire and I both talk to a lot of families on these waiting lists and they're, they're just like, oh, they're struggling to, you know, stay awake at school. They're gasping for air and... <laughs> I, I don't know about you, Claire, but I was like, if I could operate on you, I would. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to. But <laughs> if it's you could so just come in. Yeah oh, it's so distressing and the wait list is just so huge. Yeah, and, you know, with the work that I do with the outreach program, I know
0: that um, regional and rural places are really yeah. stepping up in their in their list as well as are metropolitan hospitals, not just at RCH, including, you know, the private sector. So it kind of feels like everybody's getting their tonsils and adenoids removed at the moment.
1: Yeah, and absolutely, because um, I suppose if they they weren't missing school in covid So now that they're back at school and they're having that time off... It's it's, really noticeable. It's really noticeable. They're
2: getting exposed to a lot more bugs and things like that at school. So sickness has definitely increased as well.
0: The other reason is obstructive sleep apnea. And can you take us through that? Because I know that that's something that can, you know, instill quite a lot of fear and anxiety on, uh, you know, families, you know, having to witness their children stop breathing overnight while they're asleep. And I know technology has evolved so much that it feels like every, we don't really need sleep studies in a way because every parent's got a phone and can actually show you guys and your ENT consultants, you know, the periods uh, of or the length of time that these kids are actually obstructing overnight. So can you um, talk us through that, Beck?
1: Yeah, obstructive sleep apnea is another reason to have your tonsils removed Families say that their child's snoring, and a lot of children do snore, and that's not a reason to take out the tonsils. But if they've got snoring with um, apnea spells, so that's where they pause during their sleep, they might be gasping. Um, You know, your muscles when you fall asleep Um, They relax, and that includes your muscles in your upper airway, Mm -hmm. um, so your tonsils and your adenoids. So um, they can become partially blocked or um, totally blocked, and Mm -hmm. it just prevents air going in and oxygenating the body. Um, So this can cause a disruption in sleep, and also during the day they'll they'll wake up feeling unrefreshed. They'll have learning difficulties because they can't stay awake or they're struggling to stay awake and keep that attention. They might have behavioural problems, because they're just so tired, they're depleted. And this has really big implications. So if the child is,
0: as you said, tired, you know, not concentrating, maybe having behavioural changes, this has real implications to the family unit and the way the child functions and goes to school. So it it actually does have big consequences, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, because if they're tired when they wake up, they're just not going to be productive throughout the day. Um, Families, often when we talk to them post-operatively, you know, probably three, four months down the track, Mm -hmm. they're like, oh, the big change in their behaviour is amazing. They're eating and drinking, they're concentrating, they're um, getting better at school. And I know we're just going to touch briefly on other courses of why children may require tonsil adenoidectomy. Can you run us through that? So OSA can be caused by multiple things such as obesity, um, long-term allergy or hay fever issues. There's also a lot of conditions such as um, Down syndrome, pyroban, where the children have weak muscles. Um, they have low muscle tone, small jaws and flat faces, and also children with craniofacial abnormalities that can cause um, difficulty on children taking in, you know, good oxygen through the night.
0: It's great to know that there are, a Number of reasons really why children require tonsillate adenoidectomy, and that also explains why you've got such a high volume of Cute. patients because it's <laughs> not just uh, recurrent tonsillitis or obstructive sleep apnea, and then all the implications for these children with other comorbidities. I'm going to ask you this question uh, now, Claire. So, you mentioned Beck mentioned before that children who have obstructive sleep apnea have an increased risk of experiencing obstructions postoperatively. And considering, I guess, that they've just had a general anaesthetic and potentially intraoperative opiates, can you tell us a little bit more about why this
2: would occur? These children are already prone to having an obstruction. Their airways will be quite swollen, particularly around the surgical site, purely because they've had large tonsils and adenoids. So once we do the surgery, we do have a lot of swelling around the surgical site. So there is definitely still some you know, issues with post-operative obstruction, especially when you're adding in some opioids in the mix. But we do definitely look at these children um, in the post-operative period to make sure that um, they're safe and maintaining their saturations and those sorts of things.
0: Yeah. And that's such a great point too, because, you know, you know working in the recovery unit, often we see parents come into the recovery um, to the post-anesthetic care unit and they kind of magically think that we're removing the big their big adenoids and tonsils, and that their breathing's going to be magically amazing already. And that's not always the case, as you've explained. Yeah,
2: exactly. It's not always the case. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it does it does happen, yeah. definitely. But yeah, there are definitely a cohort of children that still have those signs of obstruction that do last for a few weeks after surgery. Yeah, as it well.
0: kind of everything needs to settle down, I Absolutely. guess, and they it's... have to
2: relearn how to breathe without their obstruction. Yes, exactly. We also like to have a look at what their pre-op oximetries look like as well because that kind of puts things into context. So some children are having, you know, really significant desaturations prior to surgery, um, you know, some down into the low 80s, even into 70s. By doing the surgery, we can't always expect that that oxygen saturation's, you know, magically going to go back up to 98%, particularly in the first few hours after surgery.
0: And these, I guess, will be the children that then will automatically school that overnight stay, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I guess moving on to my next question, you know, RCH is a new clinical practice guideline that I know that you guys both have been heavily involved in kind of, you know, updating on the management of actually that obstructed patient with oxygen saturations. Can you tell us what would be considered a desaturation in terms of oxygen saturations and what the actual signs of the obstruction look like? Because I think, you know, every, every person has kind of a bit of a different interpretation and it'd be great to kind of get your perspective on that.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in this particular patient cohort, uh, we normally consider an oxygen desaturation below 90%. And we look also for other signs of obstruction. So, you know, your noisy breathing, Mm -hmm. gasping, stridor, if they're having pauses in their breath, um, if there's any increased work of breathing, utracheal tug, uh, increased heart rate. So we kind of want to look at the whole picture, not just the number on the monitor. Yeah. Their symptoms can definitely become more severe as their blood oxygen levels drop. Um, So if a child is cyanotic, that's definitely a life-threatening situation that we want be escalated immediately.
0: And usually, you'd hopefully that these problems would occur in the recovery room, not always the case. Sometimes they do occur when we take them back to the ward and then maybe they've gone into a deep sleep after they've had an anesthetic. So it'd be interesting to know for the nurse looking after this patient on the ward, what is the first step to managing these desaturations and um, obstructions?
2: Yeah. So I guess the first thing we want you to do is actually watch your patient Mm -hmm. um, and look at the whole scenario. Um, Like I said before, we don't want you to just focus on the number on the machine. Um, So we want you to have a look at, we want you to assess their breathing. What are they doing? Are they noisy? Are they lying flat on their back, which is not, you know, a great position for their airway? Are these saturations, the desaturations, self-resolving on their own? Mm -hmm. Or um, do they persistently keep happening? Uh, yeah. We also want to think about, you know, the basics of, is it actually a really good trace or is the child kicking? Yeah, and have they moved? To, it's not even on their body. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we definitely want you looking at the whole picture. Are they repositioning themselves? Are they coughing? Firstly, we want you to look at everything. If they're continuing to desat, Um, and you know that it's a good trace, then we definitely want you to look at rousing and repositioning the
0: child in the first instance. Yeah. Um, Take us through that. So what does that look like? So if we're talking about rousing the patient and repositioning, can you tell us what that actually means?
2: Yeah, sure. So quite often just rousing is either completely waking a child up or sometimes just a little touch on the arm Mm -hmm. is enough for them to stir a little bit to take a big deep breath. Right. In terms of repositioning, we want you to look at potentially lying them on their side, lifting the head Mm -hmm. of the bed up um, and just making sure that the way that they are, I guess, angled in the bed Mm -hmm. is conducive to an open airway. Yeah, that makes total Mm. sense. Because sometimes they
1: could have like a pillow that's actually causing obstruction because they're crouched forward and blocking the airway. airway. taking out a pillow could actually be helpful as well
0: and that's great and i guess providing you know the families with the education as well about what they can do um is also really important at that stage so say for example you touched on you know how we're going to manage this but how about if we have more than 3 within an hour like if this content these desaturations continue to occur
2: Yeah. So um, if the DSATs keep happening and you need to rouse and reposition and intervene in some way more than three times in an hour, then we definitely want you to have the patient reviewed. Um, And so sometimes that's just with your um, ANUM on the ward, just Mm -hmm. to check that the patient's safe. And other times that may need escalating to the medical team.
0: Yeah. So you've escalated to the medical team and now perhaps this patient may need oxygen. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us the difference, I guess, in terms of providing oxygen via just a face mask or whether this child then is a candidate for having high flow?
2: We've had some changes in our guideline recently Mm -hmm. um, and our first point of call now is just your low flow oxygen on the wall, so just some nasal prongs. Children don't always tolerate the nasal prongs, so Mm -hmm. often it's a bit of wafting oxygen. Yeah. And our goal is just to keep sats greater than 90%. So we're not aiming for 100 by any means, but just above 90. If there's no improvement with the low flow oxygen, that's when we start looking at your high flow air before moving on to high flow oxygen. Um, When we're looking at things like high flow, uh, at that point, we definitely want to ensure that our ENT registrar on call has been notified overnight that that's happening and quite often you'll have ICU involved at that point too.
0: Yeah, fantastic. And just for our listeners, the um, high flow policy and procedure is available on our RCH website. But, uh, you know, if you contact Education Hub, we can also send that out to you. You know, we're considering that this patient is unwell, they're not tolerating their high flow. At what point would you be escalating these children maybe to a high dependency unit or intensive care? Like when is too many desaturations one too many?
1: I think that one's a hard one because yeah. I think if you are unsure as a clinician, always just call a Met. Yeah. I don't think you'll ever get you won't get in trouble for calling Met escalating that care. You can't put a number on that. If you're concerned, just call a Met.
0: In terms of our policy, we wouldn't routinely insert an azogastric tube for these kids. And can you tell me why we don't do that with the tonsil adenoidectomy children?
2: yeah so the main reason that we don't insert an nasogastric is because of the trauma, the potential trauma that could occur at the surgical sites, yeah the risk of bleeding by inserting mm-hmm. an nasogastric tube far outweighs the the benefit the and benefit, the risk. yeah yeah, um, and hopefully they're not going to be on it for too long, exactly yeah, so most children are only on it for a couple of hours, it's not several days um and so at that point, we would just encourage monitoring from abdominal distension and things like that,
0: yeah, amazing now, Becca, I want to talk to you because I know you've done a great amount of work with Safer Care, and many of our listeners today actually work in other centres, including, you know, regional, rural spaces. And I just wanted to ask you, what, have, what resources do you have available for those clinicians in regards to managing kids undergoing tonsill adenoidectomies? Because I know that there's lots of resources out there, and sometimes people aren't sure where to find them or who to contact. So are you able to talk us through that?
1: So I'll give a plug to the Safer Care Victoria website. Um, back in pre covid times, we did a project to reduce readmission rates um, of tonsils and adenoids mm-hmm. throughout Victoria. And we came up with an implementation package for reducing those readmission rates because it is one of the highest readmission rates within for surgeries. Um, so they have a great package that goes through all the PDSA cycles, mm-hmm. all the um, resources such as Fact sheets are for tonsils before having the surgery. So that parents can be educated. Correct, because I think education really starts before the surgery. It's so key. Um, So fact sheets before the surgery. Sheets after the surgery, they also, we also implemented um, a medication plan because. And I've seen this and Mm. I think it's just like the bee's knees. It is fantastic. it's so good because a lot of these kids, they're otherwise well. So taking Mm -hmm. medication can be quite daunting and pain is a huge thing that we will talk about later in another podcast. Yes. It's really important to keep on top of your medication. So if families are equipped with a medication plan, write down all your medications when they're next due, everyone's on top of everything. So that was, I think, probably one of the biggest wins coming mm-hmm. from this project. So they, important. Oh, so important. I think with any surgery, to be honest, and also a bit of a follow-up was talking about telephone conversations with families after to see how they're going because sometimes you can just have a little conversation with the family during their recovery and it helps to troubleshoot some um, Some problems issues. they may be experiencing. Yeah, correct. So it might be oh, they're having ear pain and just letting them know that this is normal, it's referred pain or, hey, right. I've, o- I've noticed that you've, you know, only given Panadol twice. Let's up that to, you know, yeah, four a times a day. Just, you know, that could stop a, pa- um, a patient coming through ED and maybe being readmitted. So, And can I they... just ask you about that just with the
0: readmission mm. rates? So what were the high readmission rates? Yeah, so um, when you undertook this uh, when you undertook the work with safer care.
1: Yeah, so they went from four point five percent to zero percent. So they had they wow, you know um, exceeded their um, aim of 15 percent reduction in yeah. readmission. So it does show that these um, implementation packages do work. So, Knowledge is power, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, correct. So, yeah, what I was saying before was that they've developed a telephone script to um, help guide clinicians about what kind of questions you could ask families to help troubleshoot them through their recovery. Amazing, amazing.
0: So, um, thank you so much. I I've learned so much today. Every time I I speak, um, with you both, actually, there's so much. Extra information, you know, we're always finding out about new new policies and procedures, new ways of doing things, and obviously how this hopefully is improving patient outcomes, because really that's what it's all about. What are some
1: of the key messages
0: um, that you would like the listeners um, to know?
1: I think some of the most important messages are look at the signs and symptoms of a des- desaturation and look at the patient and the situation as a whole. Are they self resolving? How long does it take them to self resolve? But also, is a poor trace. It could just be the monitor. Let's look at the patient and the situation as a whole. It's like taking that moment. I really liked
0: how you both kind of said that, taking the moment, seeing the patient as a whole, the whole picture, not just the number. I really liked how you said that, Um, Claire.
1: Um, I think, yeah, walking in and repositioning the child straight away is not the answer. Um, Mm. Obviously, if you walk in and there is obvious signs of obstruction, there's gasping, breathing, cyanotic, Mm -hmm. then absolutely. By an emergency response. Correct. But have a really good look at the patient and see what's happening. And also reviewing previous overnight oximetries, preoperative ones, because that can give you a bit of information about their baseline information. So So, what's happening already prior to them actually having that anesthetic and having the opiates. Yeah. So there might be that level of permissive hypoxia that, you know, it's it's okay that they're just sitting at 90 because preoperatively they were sitting in their low 80s. It's only going to get better from, yeah. from now on. Yeah, correct. Yeah. <laughs> and also oxygen is safe to administer for the right patient at the right time. Obviously, if they're cynotic and it's a medical emergency, pop on oxygen and call cool that met. Um, always escalate if you're concerned.
0: Yeah. Amazing. What wonderful messages. Well, thank you both so much for coming today. I'm really looking forward to using this podcast as as actually pre-education for when I go and do, you know, outreach education, because it's, I think it's so vital that we have kind of consistency in how we manage our desaturations, particularly on the wards. So um, thank you both so much.
1: Thanks, Thanks. Tan. No worries. Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts. Part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub Podcast Series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check
1: out our other podcast show, Teach, Think, Treat.